right, everybody, grab a Bible and join me in John 19, verse 38. That's where we're going to be this morning, John 19, 38, as we continue our sermon series, Walking Through the Gospel of John. Uh, my name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. and just want to welcome you to FBC, say that we're so glad that you are with us. And uh, here at FBC, we want to help you do four things, worship God passionately, connect with others relationally, grow in Christ, right? grow in your faith, and go engage the world with the gospel. And so one of the ways that we worship God is by coming to his word and hearing it preached and studying it together and trying to apply it to our lives. And so uh, this next part of the service is worship, right? As we jump into uh, the word of God together in John 19. So uh, thank you to Steve for preaching last week uh, in John 19. His task was to finish out chapter 19, the last 12 verses or so, and I think he got through three of them. So Steve, we love you um, and thank you. But here we are again in chapter 19 to finish it out. And actually, I'm really glad. I'm truly, uh, this week as I've been studying and preparing, really glad that we're still in John chapter 19. Because the original plan was by this morning be in chapter 20 and, and moving on. But uh, there is so much here at the end of chapter 19. I really think uh, God wanted us to uh, spend this time here this morning. So here we are still in chapter 19 and we'll unpack it together. Would you pray with me one more time as we get ready? Father, we come uh, just expectantly. We expect to meet you, to hear your voice, to uh, be changed by this time with you. So would you speak now by your word and by your spirit? Would you convict us and comfort us and uh, challenge us and, and change us by this time together? Pray you help us understand what we read, apply it to our lives for our good and your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Well, okay, here at the end of John, uh, we've been looking for some time now at the arrest and the trials and the crucifixion of Jesus. Last week, Steve appointed us to the death of Jesus and his cry from the cross, it is finished, right? Mission accomplished. The, the work that Jesus came to do, bearing our sins, going to the cross, has now been completed. And he says, it is finished. But we know, right, that that's not the end of the story. His death is not the end of the story because after his death comes his, ah, wait a second. This is a Jesus juke. I set you up. Not so fast, right? After his death on the cross comes his burial. We just read it. That was a clue. It was right there, right? We, his burial, then his resurrection in all four gospels. Of course, we read about the burial of Jesus. We see here in chapter 19. Why did you guys leave that out? I don't know. But I, I admit, as I was studying, I'm, I'm with you guys, as I was preparing for this sermon series and looking at the text, I was ready to move quickly from crucifixion to resurrection, right? That's the, you know, the victory, the, the, the celebration there at the end. Jesus is alive. And yet, God uh, slowed me down, slowed us down to say, now wait a second, not so fast. There's something here in the burial of Jesus that we need to see and understand. In fact, if you look back at the ancient creeds, the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed, these you know, formulations of the faith that our you know, Christian brothers and sisters for, for centuries and centuries have recited, you read those creeds and you see it mentions the burial of Jesus. He died, he was buried, and then he was raised. And so this is a key part of the story 
that we would be wise not to overlook. So let's see this morning what really is going on here as Jesus is buried. Uh, We're going to read the text again just to hear it one more time. Verse 38. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came back and took the body away. Jesus, he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, taking Jesus' body. The two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Okay, so there's a lot going on in the text, but there's a few things I want you to see. First, uh, right on the surface, there's a surprising burial. Okay, the burial is surprising. We have these two men, Joseph of Arimathea, mentioned in all four Gospels, and Nicodemus, only mentioned here in the Gospel of John, come and they request the body from Pilate, they take the body of Jesus, uh, they prepare it for burial, and lay it in a tomb. So a few details here are surprising. Uh, First, crucifixion victims usually had one of two things happen to them. Uh, they would be either just left out in the open, like their body would be taken down, they'd be you know, thrown on the ground and, and left for the wild animals to eat. Or, typically in Jewish settings, uh, they had you know, laws that the body could not just remain out overnight, didn't want to defile the land. And so in Judaism, uh, they would take the criminal down from the cross and them in like a mass grave, like a, you know, a big grave tomb for a bunch of criminals. They would just toss them in there. Um, they would be lumped together, uh, not this like private, unused uh, family grave that we see being used here for Jesus, unless there was some kind of special exception, right? A, a family member or a bold, you know, rich person came and interceded on behalf of the criminal. It was, it was risky. We'll talk about that. And they could then bury them separately, privately. But typically, take the body down, throw it into a mass grave, or just be left out in the open. So it's An exception, not the norm, what happens here with Jesus. Uh, It's also surprising because it took a tremendous act of courage for this to happen. Okay, Joseph of Arimathea, uh, we can call him J of A for short, kind of like Bank of America, you know, B of A, we'll call him J of A. Uh, We'll talk about him more as, as we go on this morning, but for someone outside of the family, right, he wasn't related to Jesus. So for a non family member to make this kind of request, to go to Pilate, ask for the body would be really risky because it basically identifies them with the victim, right? They're now identified guilty by association, uh, seen as a sympathizer with this criminal. And in Jesus' case, again, this is um, not a a good thing. They'd be seen as, you know, maybe a disturber of the peace. They'd be seen as a revolutionary. They would be a target of scrutiny. And we see elsewhere that Joseph of Arimathea, he's a prominent member of the Jewish community. He likely had wealth and power and influence. So he has a lot to lose here. So it's surprising that he would take this step to request the body in order to bury Jesus. Look what happens next, though. There's more. Verse 40. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And then verse 42, they, they lay him in the tomb. So, right, they, they take his body down, prepare it for burial, and then place it 
in the tomb. But there's, this is done in a surprising way as well. The, the wrapping of the body with linen and the spices, that was, again, according to the Jewish burial customs. Nothing super odd there, as verse, uh, the text tells us. But um, what is surprising is the amount of substances that were used there. Verse 39 says, Nicodemus brought you see, 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. Okay, 75 pounds. The Greek unit of measurement uh, mentioned in the Greek is a litri. A litra or multiple litri. There's a, a hundred litri, the Greek text tells us, which will be about 75 pounds as, as we understand it today. Now, you need to understand, that's an extravagant amount of, of perfume and myrrh and oils and such to anoint the body. A hundred litri. Okay, remember that number, a hundred. For context, do you remember back in uh, John chapter 12, Jesus is anointed with perfume uh, by a woman named Mary. Remember that? She, he's anointed before his death, and the, the perfume, the scent of it fills the room. And uh, do you remember how the disciples respond? They're like, whoa, what a waste. Right? This is way too much perfume. We could have sold it for nearly a year's wages. Do you remember that back in John chapter 12? Like this was way over the top. It was an extravagant act of devotion and honor uh, from Mary to Jesus. Uh, really noteworthy, but the disciples were like, this is way too much, way over the top. We could have sold this for a year's wages. Uh, do you know how many, uh, the same you know, Greek unit of measurement is used in that passage as here in chapter 19. Do you know how many litri she used back in chapter 12? Any guesses? One. A few of you got it. She used one. So one litra made everyone in the room go, what are you doing? This is way too much. Girl, girl, this is a waste. What are you doing? And now in chapter 19, we have 100 times that amount. No exaggeration. Literally 100 times that amount that Nicodemus brings to honor Jesus. What an extravagant offering. An extravagant honor. The amount is so large, but it's not so large to be fabricated as if it's just fairy tale made up. I mean, who could ever possess so much? It's not that, because historical record shows us that this was the same sort of extravagant amount that you would use to honor a king. Which has been part of John's point. Last thing that's surprising here about the burial is that it fulfills prophecy. Look at Isaiah, or you don't have to turn there, but we'll have Isaiah 53 on the screen in a moment. Um, Isaiah 53 is this key passage, Steve mentioned it last week, I think, in understanding the work of Jesus. It foretold this Messiah, this Savior that would suffer and serve his people by bearing their sins and dying for them. And in that prophecy, it says that this Savior would be assigned a grave with the wicked, and the rich. Hey, look at Isaiah 53, 9. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence. You might wonder, well, what's the big deal? Actually, in the, in the Old Testament, and still today, those, those things don't normally go together, like especially in the Old Testament mind, wickedness and wealth. Okay, those were usually in their mind separate, or, or criminals in their death 
would not be honored in this lavish way that you would a wealthy king or influential person. So it was like either you die a criminal's death and you're forgotten and your body's, you know, eaten by wild animals, or you have this rich, wealthy uh, grave and you're honored in this spectacular way. But the prophecy tells us that the Savior will have both. And we, of course, know that Jesus dies a criminal's death with criminals on each side, uh, despised as a victim of crucifixion. And yet, because of Joseph of Arimathea, he comes along and likely takes him to a family tomb and buries Jesus in this rich, honorable way. So fulfilling the prophecy that doesn't seem to go together, all because of J of A. Now, as important as this all is, this surprising burial and this honor given to Jesus the king, I think what really stands out in the text here, what we really need to hone in on, is not just the burial, but the barriers. And not barriers with an A, as in like the things that get in the way, but the barriers, the men doing the burying. Joseph and Nicodemus, these two men at work, who, whom God uses. I just have to wonder, who, who will God use to bury his son Jesus. Because without the burial of Jesus, Easter might get a little tricky, right? If the body of Jesus is taken and eaten by wild animals, that would cause some problems. And if he's, you know, placed in a mass criminal grave, that might make a mess of Easter and not be as clear. You know, the body's gone, well, which one? It would have been real confusing. So who fills this key role of burying Jesus in a way that sets up the miracle of Easter? So we have surprising barriers, Look closer at these two men. It's, it's, it's been messing with me this week. Seriously, guys. It's been messing with me. Maybe you already saw it, but look, look what we're dealing with here. Okay, verse 38. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. Okay, let's talk about J of A for a little bit. Um, the other Gospels tell us that Joseph was a member of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. He's influential, likely wealthy, well-esteemed in the community. Jesus' burial recorded in all four Gospels uh, is the only place where we read about Joseph of Arimathea. It's the only place he's mentioned. And Luke tells us that the Sanhedrin condemned Jesus, right? These are the Jewish religious leaders who wanted to get rid of Jesus. But Joseph, though part of the Sanhedrin, did not consent to this action. He did not want them to, to take this step and get rid of Jesus. He's described as a righteous man. He's described as someone who's looking for the kingdom of God. Again, he has a high standing within the Jewish community. Okay, a few facts about Joseph. The most surprising thing, in my opinion, by far with Joseph, is how John describes him. Maybe you already saw it. Verse 38, it says what? He was a disciple of Jesus, but what? Secretly. Just hold on a minute. Joseph is a secret disciple. The, the word used here for secret is used elsewhere in the New Testament when Jesus tells the parable of the rich man who finds a treasure and he buries the treasure. He hides it so he can go and then you know, buy the land and it would be his. When he buries the treasure, keeps it hidden so that no one will see it or find it, same word. Okay, so he's a secret disciple, a hidden disciple. He doesn't want people to know he's a disciple. Uh, the root of the word in the Greek is kryptos, where we get the word cryptic, okay? Secret. He kept quiet about his commitment to Jesus. 
because he was afraid of the Jews. He was afraid of the implications of following Jesus. And so he was a disciple secretly. Now, I don't know about you, but I didn't think that was an option. (laughs) I mean, right? Either you're a devoted disciple, fearless, committed, heart, soul, mind, strength, devoted to the Lord, or you're no disciple at all. You're a fraud. You're a phony. You're not in the camp. And so we read this, say, wait a second, John, you call him a disciple. Can we get the Apostle John on the phone here? And you know what? Bring your supervisor, the Holy Spirit, because we know this scripture is inspired, you know, breathed out by him. And so human author, John, but Holy Spirit, really, this is your doing. So, we got, you know, can we talk for a second? Okay. Uh, John, Holy Spirit, thanks for coming to our meeting. Um, we want you to know, love the book. Love the book. You know, some really good stuff in there. I mean, John 3.16. Wow. I mean, you guys did some great work on that one, really sharing that with the world. Uh, but we have a problem. We're reading, and as we get to the end, you know, we're, as we're editing this and checking it out, um, you, you talk about this Joseph of Arimathea guy, and you call him a disciple, but you say he's a secret, fearful disciple. You say his, his discipleship is hidden. No one knows about it because he's afraid. And, I mean, we, you know, we're really serious Christians here, and so we know that that means he's no disciple at all. So we're taking issue with the fact that you use the word disciple here. And the Holy Spirit would say, well, well too bad. <laughs> I deal with it. You know, I, I called him a disciple in, in my word. So... Uh, I mean, think about it, right? Joseph of Arimathea. He would be the poster child today. Uh, the definition of the lukewarm follower. The lukewarm Christian. I've preached sermons against the posture of Joseph of Arimathea. Right? We're, we've all heard sermons like that, where it's like someone who's drawn to Jesus, but they're afraid of the implications. You fear men more than God. Fear your uh, reputation changing or the cost of discipleship rather than being fully devoted to Jesus. So a secret disciple, I'd say, well, no such thing, Joseph. It's, it's all or nothing. I mean, Joseph of Arimathea is the type of person that us people serious about Jesus, we'd look down on. We'd write him off. Like, hey, they're not committed. They don't really love Jesus. They're, they're not serious. We don't have time for them. They're not running with us. And yet John calls him a disciple. Again, just be honest, I don't know if I've had a category for that. Not only that, not only is he a disciple, like, hey, we'll let you in the club, like, you're, you know, back of the line. Like, you're, you're here, well, you know, but you got to stay at the back of the line. Not only is he a disciple, but he's the only one here at the burial of Jesus, other than Nicodemus. He shows up and honors Jesus when all the other disciples are gone. Right? The, the gung-ho disciples, who left everything disciples, who, you know, I'll die before I deny you disciple. And and I don't know where everyone else is going, but you have the words of eternal life, so where else can we go? We're here, Jesus. Those disciples, they're all gone. And here we have Joseph of Arimathea. I mean, where were the ride-or-die disciples? Where were the closest to Jesus disciples? They're gone. They're scared. They'd, They'd given up. And who's still in the game? Joseph. So what do we do with that? Come back to that. Because there's someone else here. Look who his partner in crime is. Verse 39, next verse. He was accompanied by Nicodemus. Remember Nick at night? Remember Nicodemus? He, it's, and the text tells us, hey, remember, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. John chapter 3, we looked at it. He comes to Jesus by night. He's this Jewish leader. 
and he has this debate with Jesus. And sometimes, you know, we, we're confused at how to think about Nicodemus. There's kind of two schools of thought. One is like, oh, he's like really open and he's seeking. And he's a really good example of someone who's asking questions and wants to know. Um, and I, I really don't think that's the way the text is trying to paint him. I think there's clues along the way that he's more antagonistic than open. He, um, in the dialogue with Jesus, first of all, it tells us that he comes at night, which is a time of day, but also in John, there's usually this dual meaning associated with darkness, right? like some contrast throughout the gospel between darkness and light. And usually there's like some sort of moral value ascribed to it. So he's, it's, it's symbolic. It's telling us something that he comes at night. Not only that, but as you read the dialogue, he, he really shrinks throughout. He starts by saying some things, and then by the end of it, it's just Jesus monologue, teaching and talking. And he kind of fades into the background. And he's this example of someone who just, he doesn't understand. He looks silly. He walks away not believing, really. And, and in that passage in John 3, I mean, it's powerful. We read some of the most powerful words in all of Scripture, talking about new birth and regeneration and the Holy Spirit and entering the kingdom of God and how the, the Son of Man must be lifted up and whoever believes in him uh, would be saved and, and things like that, like the serpent in the wilderness. But, but Nicodemus, is the, he's this negative example in the text. He's in darkness, he doesn't understand, and he walks away unhappy, basically. So that's John, John 3. We see Nicodemus once again in John 7, uh, where the Jewish leaders are getting all riled up about Jesus, and they want to condemn him. And, and here we see Nicodemus there kind of say like, well, wait a second. Like We see he's maybe a little further down the road of discipleship, and he's like, well, hold on. Let's just, like, we don't want to condemn someone without giving them a fair shake, a fair hearing, right? So let's just, like, hear him out. That's kind of his, you know, plea to defense, Sanhedrin. And so we're like, okay, maybe he's, like, developing a little bit. Maybe he's a little more on the fence. And then now we see him here in John chapter 19, where he brings this lavish gift to honor Jesus in burial. He's there when none of the other disciples are. And so it's so interesting that in verse 38 and 39, you see it, we're introduced to these two characters, Joseph and Nicodemus, and immediately John reminds us of these negative descriptions of who they are, right? Hey, here's Joseph of Arimathea. Remember, he was afraid and he was a secret disciple, right? Not exactly exemplary. And there's Nicodemus. Remember, he came at night. Remember that conversation? Remember, he's the guy who didn't really understand anything and didn't follow Jesus. And we're not really sure what he believes. And he, we're not really sure he could sign off on our statement of faith. Like, we're, he's a big question mark, okay? So we have those two guys. And I think they need a name. You know, we should give them a title. Like the dodgy disciples, you know, or the, I don't know, the late to the party people or the, you know, the secret Jesus bros. I don't know. You guys could come up with something good for these two and tell me later. A name, but of all the things John could have told us about them, Joseph and Nicodemus, he could have described them in a number of ways. But that's what we're given reminders of their shortcomings, reminders of their failures, and God, their ambiguity, even. And I think it's because God really wants us to see this, He really wants us to see who they were. Who they were. They've been afraid. They've been in secret. They've been in the dark, not fully committed, not fully believing. They have not been an example to follow. But that wasn't the end of the story. 
right? That wasn't the end of their story. And here, in John 19, they have this big moment where they, and they alone, step up to the plate and take this costly, dangerous step to honor Jesus and identify with him. Again, you didn't want to be associated with a condemned and executed criminal. It would make you a target. It would bring shame upon you. But without them, we're not sure what the burial looks like, and we're not even sure what Easter is going to look like then. Craig Keener, theologian and commentator, says this. This reveals Jesus' secret allies, who, though at first lack appropriate faith, but now show more fidelity to Jesus than those who more just celebrated their third Passover with Jesus. They show more fidelity to Jesus, more commitment to Jesus than all the other disciples who had spent years with Jesus. Their role suggests that ultimate perseverance matters more than prior duration of perseverance. In other words, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. So let's, let's put this all together, okay? What's the point with these two? Things that even timid disciples can rise to courageous discipleship to Jesus. Even timid disciples can rise to courageous discipleship to Jesus. So two applications for this, one of two angles. One uh, for timid disciples, and one for those of us around timid disciples. Okay, So are you a timid disciple? Maybe some of you see yourself in Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Maybe you're drawn to Jesus, and, and you believe in your heart in, in, in some sense, but you, you've kept it hidden you're afraid of the implications if it went public? What would it mean for you at your job if you were known as a wholehearted, committed, devoted follower of Jesus? If you were, would there be implications or, or uh, fallout in your family if you were known as one of those wholehearted, committed, devoted followers of Jesus? What would it mean for your friendships, for your relationships, if you started to, to fully embrace Jesus and his way and his word? There are times when it's easier to keep quiet. And it's easier to keep your head down and not, not rock the boat and not risk ridicule or worse for the name of Jesus. I get it. Following Jesus today has its challenges, right? Truly living according to the word of God in the way of Jesus is not popular today. And so perhaps us spending some time here at the end of John 19 is a, a prompting from God that, that maybe this is the time for you to take that step. Like Joseph, you've been following, would maybe even consider yourself a disciple, but it's been hidden it's been in secret. It hasn't been public. It hasn't been known. See, Joseph, when the time came, took that risk. He went to Pilate. He requested the body of Jesus to honor Jesus and identify with him publicly, even with a cost associated with it. So is there a risk? No, you're being called to. A step you're being called to take, to be seen, to be known, to identify with this Jesus. 
He would say, have courage. Come out of hiding. This could be your time and moment. Or maybe you're like Nicodemus. It doesn't tell us he was afraid, but he was certainly confused. There's some ambiguity around what he believes. And maybe you're like Nicodemus and you, you're drawn to the message of the gospel and Jesus, but you're not completely sold on it. You know, there's some, some qualms you have with, with parts of the Bible. You want to mix in, you know, some modern spiritual musings plus Jesus, like Jesus plus, you know, some other things or Jesus, but not, you know, some of the things Jesus says when Jesus calls you to take him at his word and have just Jesus. And so let's be, let's be clear. The point of the text is not that, hey, it's commendable. It's, it's virtuous. It's no big deal to like remain a secret disciple. Like, yeah, just stay there. Cool. Hey, be afraid, you know, stay in hiding, stay in the dark. No one has to know. No problem at all. Jesus doesn't mind. That's not the point. Because Jesus does call us to radical obedience, doesn't he? And to commitment, right? If anyone would come after me, take up their cross, deny themselves, and follow. He expects our full devotion. Love the Lord your God, first commandment, with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's number one, right? Full devotion. So he's, he's always calling us to that. Calling us to more. Don't, don't settle, but he's inviting us to more. And he's calling us up, not out. Right? This isn't to call you out, like, shame on you, secret disciples, and aren't you the worst, aren't you to stay and grovel, and aren't you so bad? It's just calling you out of that, or up, up out of that. It's kind of both, but up. You see what I'm saying? Calling you up to more. Jesus has more for you, more joy in walking in his ways, more life, more vibrancy, more uh, peace in your life, more alignment, more flourishing in the name of Jesus as you walk with him than you could find anywhere else. So he's inviting you into more, saying, life is better when you do it my way. Trust me, he's saying. And the good news is that for those of us who are in process, right, there's some room here to work this out. I think that's the way the text messes with this. When Peter denies Jesus, you know, Jesus shows up not to kick him off the team, but to reinstate him. And with J of A here this morning, he's afraid in secret, but he's still called a disciple. And so there is this radical patience that, that the Lord has with us, this gentleness, um, where he reminds us he's not done with us, even with past failure or faltering. Because I see you, I, I know you, and now it's, it's time. I know you're with me, let's take that step. Now, one of the ways we do this, not the only way, but one of the foundational ways we do this is by publicly identifying with Jesus in baptism. So followers of Jesus are called to be baptized. It's not optional. Really, it's not not like, hey, if you want to get baptized, cool, do it. No, Jesus says, hey, do it. (laughs) He says, get baptized as a way to publicly identify with him in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. So disciples of Jesus are called to be baptized, to acknowledge that we are committed to him as Lord and Savior. Our life is now hidden with him, found with him. We've died with him. We're now alive with him. We're part of his family. This is the fundamental identity of who we are. And so if you are a Christian and have not been baptized, we want you to be baptized. We want to invite you to have a conversation with us. We're, gonna, uh, we're planning a baptism service for September 11th, a little over a month away. 
We're having a baptism info meeting on August 28th. It's a Sunday, a few weeks away. We would love to have you come out and learn more about what baptism is and talk with you taking that step. Uh, if you're interested right now, you're like, I think that might be me. Uh, um, on your connection card, you can indicate that, saying, hey, let me know about baptism, and we'll follow up with you. We can invite you to the meeting, remind you. We'd love to have that conversation with you. Here's the good news of the gospel, that Jesus calls us to identify with him publicly. But he's already identified with us. Right, Jesus came in the incarnation, God himself now in the flesh, the third person of the Trinity, walking among us, taking on our humanity, identifying with us in our frailty, in our sin, taking our sin upon himself, dying on the cross for us. He publicly identifies in his death with our sin and our shame, taking it all upon himself so that we, through faith, can be identified with him in his victory and in his life. So the good news of the gospel is that we're saved not by our performance, but through faith in the work of Jesus on the cross. We're saved by grace, through faith, not by works. We simply receive it, we believe, and we follow. So that's the encouragement for for timid disciples, for J of A's in the house, and Nicodemus is in the house. But what about those of us around timid disciples? What about us? Here's a question. Do we leave space for timid disciples? Do we have a category? Uh, Do we leave room for for J of A and Nicodemus? These late bloomers, you could say? Or, Or do we write them off? Secret disciple, no such thing. Lukewarm, get out of here. They're not serious like me. They're not committed like me. Right? Don't we often, sometimes in our walk, become legalistic or proud or compare or critique or we're known more for our big opinions than our big hearts? Reminds me, back in, uh, in Colorado, Amber and I were volunteers in a youth ministry at our church there uh, during seminary. And just adult volunteers spending time with the students. And there was um, this one student and we'll just we'll call her Michaela because that was her name. And she was kind of looked down on by a lot of the other students and some of the adult leaders kind of like wrote her off as like she's not really that serious. She's she's kind of flaky. She's not that committed. I mean, I don't know, she's kind of edgy in some of the music she listens to or the way she interacts flirts with some of the guys in the group or whatever it was. All, you know, people were like she's not she's just not the real deal. And and seriously, there were these students that like you all, you thought like just from the outside, you're like these students, I mean, they're like journaling in their Bibles all the time. They're like, you know, reading, they're leading, like they're the serious ones. And like them and some of the adult leaders were like that, that Michaela, she, she, she ain't it. You know, she's, she doesn't get it. And it's really just looking back on that, I was like, oh, that's kind of, we don't handle that very well. But, um, but now, now eight, eight years or so later, a lot of those, like, serious, like really serious, committed, you know, students, um, no longer walking with the Lord. And some of those leaders, adult leaders, no longer walking with the Lord, no longer involved in the church. But Michaela is. She's serving in her church. 
She's faithfully committed to Jesus. And I, I tell you, her story is not the only story like that. I feel like I've seen that pattern in, in my own youth group as a student, right? Um, where sometimes the people that you, you think are really serious, over time it shows they're not. And the people who you don't suspect or you write off or you're like, I don't know, they turn out to be the ones that just humbly, faithfully, quietly, right, just continue in the way of Jesus and God uses them. And so let's not write people off because they're still in process, right? Again, we don't just say, hey, like, yeah, believe whatever you want, do whatever you want, no one cares. We're always calling people up, calling people to more, calling people to faithfulness, to Jesus. But there has to be some space for people to work that out. Now, there are these Jewish leaders in the Gospels uh, called the Pharisees. Right? It's like a curse word. Ah, you Pharisee. We know, you know, they're just, um, they were constantly combating Jesus, and they're legalistic, and they're like quick to exclude, you know, the sinners and point to how righteous they are, and um, people, you know, aren't as holy as they are, and, and sometimes we have this tendency in this way to shift into the mindset of a Pharisee. Uh, Larry Osborne, pastor down in San Diego, has wrote this great book called Accidental Pharisees, and it's a great title for a book, Accidental Pharisees. And actually in there, he writes a lot about uh, Joseph of Arimathea. He was the first one that kind of like clued me in to like, hey, we should take a closer look at Joseph of Arimathea. So really benefited from some of his study and work in, in this message this morning. But in his book, Accidental Pharisees, uh, he describes how we don't set out to become Pharisees. Like, that's not our goal. Like, I'm going to be a Pharisee. No, no one says that. He says becoming a Pharisee is kind of like eating at Denny's. No one plans to go there. You just end end there. You know? Which is so true. And apologies to our Denny's enthusiasts in the house. Um, But really, you just kind of end up there. And so we kind of become Pharisees over time if we're not careful. And we become legalistic and we puff ourselves up about how much we know or how much we do or how they got it wrong. And we we turn the lens. We use, uh, what's the phrase? Uh, more magnifying glass or binoculars instead of mirrors. And rather than looking at our own sin and being humble and repentant, we're quick to just look at what you're doing wrong. And so we come across a modern-day Joseph of Arimathea or Nicodemus, and we write him off. You're a phony. You're just a consumer Christian. You're not serious enough about the gospel. I think the call here, right, and says we should look at chapter 19 and what God did with these men and see, well, how did he treat Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus? Well, he used them for his glory. He used them when all the other committed people were gone. He didn't kick them off the team. He invited them to step onto the field and get in the game because he had good work for them to do. And so for those of us around timid disciples, We need to make room for them. We need to be patient. We need to practice forbearance. How to be slow to chastise and quick to encourage. We need to remember how incredibly patient God has been with us. One of the ways we do that is we, twice a month here at FBC, practice communion. We come to the table. And we remember the work of Christ. And in doing that, it humbles us. 
It reminds us of our great need. We needed a Savior, right? The ground is level at the foot of the cross. We all needed to be rescued. We all needed God's mercy and grace. And so we take these elements remembering the broken body of Jesus and the shed blood of Jesus for our salvation. And it's only in him and his work and his name that we're saved. And as we do that, historically, again, communion has been an act of remembering the Lord and an act of unity within the church. That we, we, we take these same elements, we look around and realize we're all uh, needy, we're all dependent, we're all relying on the same Savior. And so we practice uh, an open table here at FBC, which simply means if you are a follower of Jesus, we invite you to participate. Even if you're, you're visiting or this isn't your home church or whatever, if you are a follower of Jesus and you put your faith in him, we invite you to participate with us as we take the elements. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll take them together. Father, we come to you with grateful hearts this morning for your incredible mercy. You did not give us what we deserve, death and judgment and hell. We thank you for your incredible grace that you gave us what we did not deserve, your favor and welcome and your love and new hearts and your spirit and adoption into your family. We thank you, Jesus, for being our Savior. You're the hero of the story. You came, you died, you were buried, and you rose again in victory. And so we take these elements together to remember you. We humbly come with open hands to receive. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and broke it and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood given for you. Do this in remembrance 